Welcome. You are listening to a sermon presented at the First Church of Christ in Elkins, West Virginia. This message is given by pastor and teacher Jason Brandon. Jason will be selecting passages from the Word of God and showing us how to apply God's Word in our lives today. He will also be showing us why we need Jesus. How can faith, God, and the Bible have more influence in your daily life? What is God saying to us today? For this and more, stay tuned. My name is Micah Oder, and uh, about four different people have said, now, is it really Oder? And so I just thought I'd set the record straight. It's Micah Oder. It's spelled O-D-O-R, and it's pronounced just like it's smelled, all right? And uh, that was my Grandpa Ivan's, one of his favorite jokes. And uh, if you think about it for a minute, his name was Ivan Oder. <laughs> That's a true story. He... Uh, I thought, I asked my dad one time, like, why would his parents do that to him? Like, were they being funny? Like, why did they name him Odor? My dad said, to be honest with you, I don't think it occurred to any of them. Uh, We're from a small town in northern Kentucky, and um, a lot of the town is named Odor, and so, or they're all, you know, related, or a couple different names, but they're all kind of related to each other. And so, uh, most of the town went by first name, middle name. And so, he went by Ivan Cook until he got to school in first grade for the first time, and... uh, the teacher was calling roll and called Ivan Oder, and everybody laughed, and he realized for the first time that his name was a joke. So he, uh, re- they re-enrolled him in the school as Ivan Cook. He went K through 18, or, well, K, there was no kindergarten back then, but first through uh, 12th grade as uh, Ivan Cook, and then he enrolled in college as Ivan Oder, and we know him today as Ivan Oder. But, um, but it's a great name because it's, it was actually, people say, well, you get teased a lot. I said, well be honest with you, you know, people have told all the jokes you're going to hear by about third grade, and after that, you know, it's just, there's nothing new to be said, so uh, it was great, Everybody, every kid gets made up for something, like whatever, whatever you you know, you can think back to the horror that was elementary school for you, and, and every kid gets made, up for, made fun of for something, my, the great thing was that I knew what they were going to make fun of me for, so that was a, a delightful thing. I was in uh, seventh grade. I had a substitute teacher. She was calling roll, and she said, Micah, odor? I said, present. She said, is it, is it really odor? I said, yep. She said, do you get teased a lot? I said, well, by the seventh grade, most of the kids are mature enough to handle it. Mostly, I just have problems with teachers. <laughs> so it was not an auspicious beginning to our relationship, but uh, it was funny. Well, hey, I got three jokes for you before we start. We've already laughed a little, but uh, here's my first one. What do you call a cat that tells lies? A perjurer. (laughs) Why are hot dogs so truthful? Because they're quite frank. And two conspiracy theorists die and go to heaven. At the pearly gates, the first one asks Peter, who really killed JFK? Peter says, it was Lee Harvey Oswald acting alone. The first one leans over to the other and says, the cover-up goes even higher up than we thought. (laughs) Well, good morning. My name is Micah Oder. And if you listen to those jokes and you didn't think they were very funny, I have good news for you. It means you have an excellent sense of humor. You have excellent taste. The bad news is I didn't say it to make you laugh. I said it to make me laugh. That's how dad jokes work is they're told for the benefit of the teller, 
not for the benefit of the hearer. Can any dads in the audience, uh, in the congregation today, confirm that that's the case? All right. Thank you, brother. I see that hand. Uh, Sadly, we can't spend the rest of our time telling jokes today because we have a fairly serious topic to get into, the topic of truth. The topic of truth. As I understand it, you guys are on a, uh, on, a, on a quest, you're on a series that you're working through these questions of what Jesus loves. Does that sound accurate? If you think all the way back to last week, does that sound like something you guys talked about over the last few weeks? Jesus loves, I looked it up on the website, I, I watched a little bit of the sermon, so Jesus loves uh, the sick. Um, uh, Jesus loves the Samaritan woman. Today we're going to talk about truth, and i got to tell you, Jesus loves the truth. Jesus loves truth. It's a core part of his message. It's a core part of his identity. It's a core part of his self-concept. It's how he describes himself. The beginning of the book of John, it starts out and says, the first thing it says about Jesus is that he was filled with grace and truth. John 7, Jesus describes himself as a man of truth in whom there is no falsehood. In John 14, 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We're going to return to those verses shortly. But first, let's just, let's just play with this philosophically for a minute, all right? When we say that something is true, what do we mean? I hadn't really thought about that. I, I you know, was prepping for this message, and I thought, well, what, what do we mean when we say something is true? What we mean is it corresponds... This is philosophical, but stay with me. It corresponds to objective reality. Something is true if, if it matches up with what is objectively real, right? There is reality, and our statements are true if they correspond to that reality. If they match that reality, then our statements are true, right? Now, there's, I was reading up on this this past week. There's like eight different major ways that people try to say, um, this is how you tell what's true, but most of them kind of fall under that category of, of man, if it, if it corresponds to reality, then it's true. The problem with that is that the concept of reality, the concept of truth, is in decline in our culture. I was looking, I looked up a, uh, there's a, a Barna study from just a couple years ago where he said in every contingent, every age group, Every demographic group, every religious group, every, you know, like every way he sliced the data, he said, in every way, what we see over the last 10 years is a fall in the number of people, the percentage of people that say there is an objective truth that we can know. More and more people would say, well, truth is kind of subjective. Truth, it just kind of depends on you. More and more people would say, you have to find your truth. Now, there's some very limited senses in which you could maybe say that and not be wrong. Like, for example, my wife and I are different in terms of our preference for heat. Any other, uh, any other couples unequally yoked in the congregation here? right? And so when my wife says it's cold, 
I don't always think that it's cold, right? But we're not disagreeing on the objective reality of whatever the temperature is. When she says, I'm cold, or when I say, I'm hot, what I mean is, I feel hot or cold at this temperature, right? I'm not comfortable. But we're not disagreeing on whether or not the thermostat itself is accurate, right? We've got a tool. It measures the temperature. We know what the temperature is. That's, that's how hot or cold it is. We might prefer it. Our preferences, we're allowed to have preferences. Our preferences might be for that number to be higher or lower, but that doesn't mean that we don't agree on what is true. Like, it's actually this temperature. That makes sense? So while there is a sense in which there is some subjectivity that, that makes sense there, when we get into a mode where we say truth itself is relative, dangerous things start to happen. Now, this is uh, creeping into more and more parts of our culture, right? And I have to say it's pretty terrifying if you think about it from a meta level, just like what if I, I, a friend of mine is in the hospital right now. Um, he, uh, his name is Janil. He had a, uh, let me get this wrong. He had a blood clot in his leg, and it went, went up into his lungs, an embolism. I'm, I'm, I think that's right. Uh, and so I was texting him before service, or texting his wife. Okay, where, where do we stand? And she's, okay, he's out of the ICU, so that's good. Um, but when I go in and see the doctor, or when he goes in and sees the doctor, I don't want the doctor to say, well, what's your truth, right? What do you think we should do? That's not at all what I want. I want a doctor who can diagnose the problem, say this is what reality is, and here's how we're going to approach it. Right? And so the, the more that we move away from truth as something that's objective, the scarier it gets. Now, I had, a, I had an illustration here written in my sermon. And I think I was, I was looking at it before service started, and I thought maybe I should pivot away from this illustration because I feel like uh, it's going to miss some of you. It's too young for some of you and too old for others. But most of the kids left the room, so I'm going to go ahead and use it at least. Way back in the ancient days, there was a movie. Um, long, long time ago. I was going to make. I was going to tease the kids before any of you were born. Uh, there was a movie called um, The Matrix. Did you guys? Anybody ever watch The Matrix? No, they don't. Never. No. Thank you, brother. You and me. Two of us. Have, the rest of you, I know, don't watch movies. But, uh, but The Matrix was the movie that sold DVDs. Like when it came out on DVD, that was the first year DVD players were affordable. And so everybody bought a DVD player that year, and then they all bought a copy of The Matrix. And there's this line in, Mat- in The Matrix that's one of the most accurate lines that I've ever heard. There's, the protagonist's name is Neo. His code name is Neo. And uh, another character says, do you believe in fate, Neo? And he says, no, I don't. He says, why not? He says, because I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. I thought, he didn't ask you what you liked. He asked you what you thought was true. And the answer is, this is what I would prefer to be true. I thought, that's a very interesting way to live your life. I would prefer if this were true, in my preference. I'm most comfortable with this being true, and so I'm going to live as if that's true. That's really not a very good way to live. (laughs) What you should do is you should try to understand what reality is and adapt yourself to that, rather than saying, this is what I would prefer reality is, and I'll live in a dream world where that's the case. Right? 
But this is what our this is the the thing that made that line a true description of the ethos of our culture, the true description of the way that our culture works, is that's how a lot of us work. People really want to determine their own truth, you know. It's true because they want to believe. Like I said, the, the, the polling data is really clear. You have greater and greater numbers of people that are willing to say, hey, that's true for you, but not for me. That's true for you, but not for me. Guys, if it's true, it's true. I'm going to tell you what I believe. I could be wrong. I have to acknowledge that I could be wrong. But I don't think I am. Here's what I believe to be true. I believe that ultimate reality is Jesus Christ himself. There's nothing in this world as real as Jesus. This is a central idea of the book of Hebrews, right? We live in a world that's, that's a copy or a lesser expression of the true reality of heaven, right? As above, so below. That that is what reality is, and we're only seeing a sign and a foretaste of it here. It might be too philosophical for this morning, but, but let's, I'll say this. I believe the highest and truest and realest thing in the history of this universe is Jesus Christ himself. In him there is no falsehood. He says about himself, I am the way and the truth and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. He doesn't say I'm a way, a truth, and a life. (laughs) I'm your way, your truth. He doesn't say that. The, singular. You know what's interesting is that all of the gospel writers talk specifically about Jesus and truth. But today we're going to stay primarily in the gospel of John. All right, um, And it's a really major theme in the Gospel of John. But actually, all of the Gospel writers talk about Jesus and truth. Matthew, the tax collector, it was really, you know, how do I say this? The, the Gospels themselves, they're the inspired word of God, but they're written by people who had specific points that they were trying to make as they wrote down the words that they, that they wrote. Does that make sense? You're with me on that? That... The Gospel of Matthew was written by Matthew. And what he wanted people most to know about Jesus was that Jesus was the embodiment of, he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. And so every time when you're reading Matthew, Matthew says, oh, by the way, this is, this is to fulfill this prophecy. Matthew's always referring back and talking about the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Mark almost never mentions those things because he's writing to a Roman audience. and He wants people to know that Jesus is the answer. Jesus is changing the world, right? Mark, John Mark, the, the, the groupie, basically. Uh, Mark says, man, Jesus is changing the world, and everything's immediate, and Jesus is doing these things, and he wants people to know what Jesus has been doing. This is what Jesus does. Uh, Luke, the physician, right? Luke, the doctor, he wrote to the educated, and he really, it was important to him. He said, Jesus, it was important to him that people know that this is verifiable, right? Um, when, when, um, when Luke writes, he says things like, well, this happened during this census, and this happened, this happened not just in a random town, but it happened on this town about three miles or eight miles east of Jerusalem, where he says, okay, well, here they went here, and they sat, like, Luke's, 
Luke's really big on giving details that are verifiable, right? You could go check this for yourself, just like I did, Luke said. I interviewed the eyewitnesses, right? I talked to Mary, who stored up these things in her heart. Luke, Luke's the guy who wants you to know that this is verifiable. All of these guys are interested in the truth. But John, who's kind of the, the philosopher of the group, when he talks about Jesus, he talks more about Jesus and truth than any of the other gospel writers. We're going to see that. We're going to dive into John today. And I always wonder, like, why? Why did John make sure to talk repeatedly about Jesus and truth? We don't know the answer because uh, John doesn't tell us. He just says, this is, what's, this is what I want you to know. Um, but he was also the longest lived of the apostles. Most of the apostles died um, martyrs' deaths fairly early. And John ended up in exile and lived long enough to write a bunch of things down late in his life. And, um, and as I just kind of imagine a scenario where he looks out, he surveys the, the churches, he says, what do these people need to know about Jesus? And what he says is, they need to know that he is the truth. The beginning, the middle, and the end of his gospel, he's talking about Jesus is the truth. All right? But it's one thing to mentally assent to something, and it's another thing to act on it. I don't know if you know this, but we, in America, we use the word belief differently than the way that, the way that word is mostly used in the Bible. Like if I say belief, mostly what I mean by that is intellectual assent. Like I, there's something in my brain that says, yeah, that's true. So if you say, do you believe in Jesus? When I talk about belief, I think, yes, I believe that is true. We're very cognitive. We're very thinking in our faith, which is, part, there's parts of that that aren't bad. But in the first century, when you talk about belief, it's never about your ideas. Belief is very little to do with ideas in the first century. Uh, and you see this in the New Testament. It's always about what you're actually willing to do. Right? The classic example of this, when I was in youth group, they would say, it's different to say, do you believe that chair will hold you? That's different from actually sitting on the chair. Right? I believe that the lights will turn on when I flip the switch, but that's different from actually trying to turn on the lights. All of Hebrews 11 gets into this. He says, the ancients were raised for what they did. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But it wasn't about just Abraham saying, oh, I think that's probably true. When, when it says Abraham believed God, it always lists the actions that he took. Right? When we go through all of what we call the hall of faith in Hebrews 11, and it says all the people that were commended for their faith, they weren't commended for what they thought about. They were commended for what they actually did. And I think for a lot of us, there's a disconnect in our lives and in our, in our kind of concept of what it means to be a, a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus. There's a disconnect between what we say we believe and what we actually do. Somebody from the first century, somebody who would have been the original recipients of the New Testament would say, I can tell what you believe by what you actually do. Jesus says, you know, you can tell what kind of tree it is, not by what it's labeled, you can, or by what's in the roots. You can tell what kind of tree it is because that's the kind of fruit that comes out of it. 
There's been a lot of times in my life where I have intellectually thought, yes, Jesus is real. Yes, God forgives me. Yes, I should put my trust in him. Those, those ideas make sense to me. But there, if I'm honest, there have been times, more times than I would like, where I might have said those things, but if you had looked at my life, you would say, do you really believe? Micah, do you really believe that God's going to take care of you, or do you think that's your job? Micah, do you really think that God loves you the same no matter what, or do you think that he'll love you more if you do more stuff for him? I could say the right words. <laughs> Whether or not my actions always represented that, I have to confess to you that there's a little discon- there's something of a disconnect. There's some space between those two things. And I don't know you, and this isn't an accusation, but I think the, the same is probably true for you as well. There have been times when we don't live up to our ideals. Because that's the human condition, right? What does it mean to believe? It means to act as if the promises of God can be trusted. Why can the promises of God be trusted? Because in him there is no falsehood. Why is it safe to put our faith in Jesus? Because he is truthful. Not just truthful, he is truth. Right? Truth is not just an idea, it's a person. I'd like for us to spend the time we have today looking at two portraits from the Gospels. Neither of them is Jesus. All right, Just get that out there right, right away. We're going to look at two people that the Gospel of John talks about extensively. One is Thomas, and the other is Pilate. When I say Pilate, I don't mean flying the plane. I mean Pontius Pilate, right? Now, both of these men come face-to-face with Jesus, and both of these men are forced to confront their own view of truth in their interactions, right? Thomas is an interesting case. If there was an adjective that gets applied to Thomas most frequently, what is it? You guys want to yell at me? The first, the first hour was very good at yelling at me, so I'm hoping that we carry that forward. What, what do we know about Thomas? If we were to, to put an adjective next to him, his name, he would be what? Doubting, Doubting Thomas, right? You guys know the story. I... Um, I think of Thomas as kind of the Eeyore of the, the apostles. You guys know Eeyore? Eeyore. Well, it's not a very good house, but it's mine, right? Gospel of John tells us more about uh, Thomas than any of the other gospels do. It's not necessarily complimentary. Um, he's kind of, like I said, he's kind of the Eeyore of the group. In John 11, uh, Jesus is getting ready to go back because um, Lazarus is about to die. Jesus says, hey, he's going to die, but it's not going to happen. I'm going to get there. We're going to take care of this. And uh, we're in 11, 8 through 16. I'm just going to read it to you. Uh, we're going we're gonna to cover a fair bit of Scripture today. So I just, you're welcome to, if you've got a Bible with you or a Bible app, I would encourage you to, uh, to pull that out. I'll, I'll tell you where we're going. Uh, but we're all going to be in John. So if you get to the right spot, it's just, Forward a couple pages, back a couple pages. You know, we're not going all over the Bible. Uh, John chapter 11, verses 8 through 16. The, the disciples respond to Jesus. They say, but Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are, not there, are there not 12 hours of daylight? 
Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night they stumble, for they have no light. The apostles apostles all look at each other and they say, was that a yes or a no? Like, what, what are you saying right now, Jesus? After he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him. The disciples replied, well, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. That's a good thing, right? Sleep it off. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but the disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us go also, so that we may die with him. Or, Eeyore, let us go also, uh, let us go also so that we may die with him. Right? It's kind of a gloomy, it's kind of a, yeah, it's gloomy, it's, it's uh, not real hopeful. But I'll say this for Thomas. He goes. I don't know if he has faith enough that Jesus is going to get through the thing without dying, but he has faith enough to know that wherever Jesus goes, Thomas wants to go with him. We give Thomas a hard time. Even I'm, you know, I have to apologize for the Eeyore thing when I see him in heaven. But, uh, but, but say this for Thomas. He believes... <laughs> that they're probably going to get killed when they go there. But he goes anyway. That's not nothing. right? We're going to fast forward a little bit through the book of John. We're going to go to John chapter 14. If, you're, uh, if you just go a couple pages, you're going to get there. And this is what Jesus says at the beginning of chapter 14. Jesus says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come back and take you with me so that you may be where I am. You know the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can, you, how can we know the way? Jesus is speaking metaphorically, right? Of heaven. Thomas says, we don't know how to get there. It's interesting because Thomas uh, would eventually be martyred for his faith. And so he went in exactly the same way that Jesus went. Maybe not crucifixion, but but he was martyred for his faith. And uh, so he did actually know the way. But Jesus answered, he said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. But now let's talk about what happens after that. Thomas is at the Last Supper. Something's going on. They're not quite sure about it. Feet washing, communion, the first communion. They go to the Mount of Olives. Thomas falls asleep. He wakes up to a crowd of men coming forward. They take Jesus, capture him, take him back to be tried. Jesus goes through a series of trials, right? Thomas and the disciples sneak out to where they can see that he's crucified. He sees the man that he said he would die with, and he doesn't die with him. 
Jesus died, is buried, and then a little while later, Thomas hears something that he doesn't believe. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, Sunday evening, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he'd said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they're not forgiven. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when, the Lord, when Jesus came. Thomas was not with the disciples. Everybody's together except Thomas. We don't know why. He does meet up with them later, so it's not like he's totally disavowed, but maybe, I don't know, maybe he was going out to get coffee or something. We don't know. But it's easy to suspect that there's, in some way, his doubt is playing into this, right? Thomas does not believe. Thomas, known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the the nails were and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. We've all had times where that's us, right? As I was driving here last night, I was praying for my friend Janiel, who's in the hospital this, you know, this morning. And I said to God as I was driving, God, sometimes I pray and I don't believe that you can do what you say you're going to do. And so I want you to help me believe today. I say that I believe. But have you ever prayed for someone who's really sick on death's door and you think, I don't know if this is going to help? Maybe not. That's not the person I want to be. And most of the time, it's not the person I am. But there's days, you know? You're just tired. And you say, God, are you... Are you really going to do something here? And to be clear, I believe that he can. I believe that God's real. That, that for me is unshakable. I just know it's a big world. And sometimes I think, man, God, you've got a lot of things you're doing running the world. Maybe this is too small for you to pay attention to. Which is stupid. But I didn't say I was smart. And so, uh, so it's been good for me. It's good for me to wake up this morning and get the text from his wife saying, We've moved, they've moved him out of the ICU. I was like, thank you, Jesus. So, um, so Thomas, I'm, I'm sympathetic to Thomas here where he says, that doesn't sound reasonable. That doesn't sound likely that he rose from the dead. I saw him die. I saw him buried. I'm not going to believe it's him unless somebody shows me and until he shows me his hands and his feet and his side. 
26, a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. He's like, I'm not sure what's going on, but I'm going to make sure I'm here for it, right? Thomas was with them. Through the, though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand. Put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas says to him this great, this great thing. The first time this phrase is used in the Gospels. Thomas says to him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Thomas is convinced and he carried that conviction through the rest of his life. My Lord and my God. Jesus told him, because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Which is us, right? I'm, I believe, but I've never seen physically the scarred hands and feet of Jesus. But I do believe. Thomas says to him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said, you've seen and believed. But there were a lot of people who saw Jesus and didn't believe. We're going to talk about one of them in a minute. Truth is objective. But how we react to truth, that's called integrity. Integrity. Right? Integrity is, uh, the, the word is similar to integrated. That means that all the pieces of our life fit together. They're not compartmentalized, right? Compartmentalization. The first time I ever heard about compartmentalization was, uh, well, it was actually in a political situation. It was uh, the impeachment of Bill Clinton. People said, well, he compartmentalizes, you know. He, this, he can be truthful over here, but not truthful over here. I remember thinking, that's not how truth works. <laughs> like Integrity means that we're integrated, that we're not different over here than we are over here than we are over here. You're not a different person on Sunday morning as you are on Sunday night. You're not a different person on Sunday morning as you are on Wednesday, right? We should be the same person all the time. That's what it means to have integrity. We have integrity when we interact with the truth in such a way as we show that we actually believe it. If I really believe that's true... I should act in a way that demonstrates that. The next guy we're going to look at, Pontius Pilate, failed to do this. Pilate, ruling Israel. Pilate, uh, Jesus is um, brought before him. They want to crucify him, right? Remember we talked about this. He gets grabbed in the garden. He gets taken. Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus as always, answers the question with a question. He says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied, your own people and priests handed you over to me. What have you done? Jesus said, my kingdom's not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest from the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Oh, so you are a king then, says Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am king. In fact, the reason that I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me, Jesus says. And the pilot has this great response. He says, what is truth? Eh, what is truth, Pilate says. 
With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? It's kind of different for you and me, isn't it? It's not like there's just one truth. You know, these rulers and officials, they have one truth, and you have a different truth, and I have a different truth. What is truth really? And if you talk to somebody and they can't give you a good answer for that question, then you've got to watch out. Jesus, Pilate goes out, talks to the crowd, comes back in. Jesus isn't speaking to him. Pilate says, do you refuse to speak to me? Don't you realize I have power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus responds, you'd have no power if it were not given to you from above. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the people kept shouting, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. When he heard this, he brought Jesus out, sat him at the judge's seat at a place of the stone pavement. Um, Here is your king. Pilate said, I want him crucified. Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar, they say. Finally, in verse 16, Pilate, finally Pilate handed him over to be crucified. So the sol- soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified with him with two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It reads, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews saw this sign, but the place where Jesus was crucified near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests protested, do not write the king of the Jews. Write, this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I've written, I've written. It's impossible to know exactly what was happening here. But it seems to me that Pilate really did believe intellectually. Some part of him really did believe that Jesus was who he said he was. It's not clear that Pilate doesn't believe Jesus. What is clear is that he doesn't have the integrity to act on it. Pilate might appreciate the truth as an intellectual puzzle, might be fun to think about or talk about. What will not happen is he's not going to allow the truth to get in the way of accomplishing what he wants to accomplish politically. It's not that Pilate doesn't know the right thing. God reveals stuff to him supernaturally in a dream through his wife. All kinds of things happen. But what Pilate does is he does what's right for him politically. It's easiest and most convenient not to take a stand. So while Pilate might have actually believed that Jesus was exactly who he said he was, What he doesn't allow is for that to impact his actions. Thomas is hard to convince. But when Thomas believes that the truth is what it is, then he lives a life of integrity where he lives out what he knows to be true. Pilate doesn't argue too much. He kind of gets convinced early on, but he doesn't allow it to change his actions. And so my question for you and my question for us is what kind of Christian are we? Jesus loves truth, but specifically I think he loves the integrity of living out the truth that we know. 
Again, this is not an accusation. This is just because this is human nature. There are things that you say you believe about Jesus that you have not yet fully lived out. What are those things? And if you actually believe them, what would it look like to put them into practice? I believe, Jesus says, that I should, for, I should forgive others as I've been forgiven. But it is easy for me to hold on to unforgiveness in my heart. I really do believe that Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But when somebody offends, turn the other cheek, by the way. That's not, we're not talking about danger and protection here. We're talking about an insult, right? To get hit. <laughs> I didn't forgot there was a microphone there. If I get hit in the face, now we're all awake. If I get hit in the face, that's not danger, that's insult, right? I don't ever, I don't, it's nothing in me naturally just wants to let people insult me again. I'm like, oh yeah, well let me tell you about your, no, right? I believe that, I believe that Jesus said, why do you worry about tomorrow, right? I take care of the flowers in the field and the sparrows, I'm going to take care of you. But man, sometimes it's really hard for me to actually trust that he's going to come through on that. And so I think I got to do it. I got to make my plan for tomorrow. When we come face to face with the teachings of Jesus, we see that regularly there's parts of our lives where we know the truth, but it has not yet set us free. And my challenge for you and for us this week, as we close close down our time, I'm asking you to ponder this question. What do you know to be true that you have not yet put into practice? Where, where, where are the points where the parts of your life are not integrated? <laughs> where your head hasn't made the distance to your heart? I think that's where God wants to work on you this week. What would it look like if we were consistent And the things that we intellectually believe were true, if they actually came out in our lives. In the first hour we were talking, we said, you know, what would it look like for us to live such a life that our atheist friends question their atheism because of our life? And I'll tell you what it takes. It takes that kind of integrity, not just to look at someone and see, oh, they think this is true, but that they act as if it's true. That's my challenge for you and for us. Act as if... What you know to be true is actually true. Act as if God can actually be trusted. Act as if you actually believe it. I'll tell you this. I have never once regretted the life that I've lived when I've lived as if God can be trusted. We're going to have a time of invitation. Um, and I would invite you. Thank you for listening. You can contact us at our website, firstchurchofchristalkins.com, where you can also find out more. Have a nice week. For the first time again or just need something.